0: And now, BUSINESS GAMES! Hello there, fellow learner, and welcome to... a Learner's Digest edition of BUSINESS GAMES, an educational series where we apply game theory to business to help you make better decisions under uncertainty. As I promised last time, I'm changing the layout of these newsletters to cater to a growing community of fellow learners. Today, at roughly one-third mark of our experimental season, I want to cover three questions. 1. How is business games set up like an experiment? And how this could be interesting to you? 2. How does all that we've covered to date relate to each other? This is where i build the connective tissue through all the guests and topics so far and tell you what's coming next and finally three how can you think about ambiguity in an empowering fashion now our tagline is make better decisions but it might as well have been master uncertainty in fact mustering uncertainty is the tagline of our consulting company many people think that the opposite of uncertainty is certainty but let me rephrase Many business people think that there is a world of certainty and to successfully deal with uncertainty is to return to that world of certainty. That's a mistake. Certainty does not exist. It never had. The trick to dealing with uncertainty is not to seek certainty. It is to learn to accept the inherent randomness of the world and to learn to use it to your advantage. On our consulting website, we like talking about leveraging uncertainty. Well, that's great ai but what does it actually mean well great question for the third topic today in our usual wisdom of the crowd section i want to give you an example of what this actually means so stick around and mind you that's just one example there will be many more to come we'll actually dive deeper into this conversation in the future seasons so number one pulling back the curtain on the business games experiment Our newsletter format change fits into the experimental nature of season two, where it's all about business experiments. One of the premium listeners said to me, you called the season the experimental one, saying that it is itself an experiment, but you haven't talked about it. Okay, good, heard that. And here's my pulling back a curtain a bit on the progress to date. What am I trialing in this newsletter here? Okay, this specific change is designed to test a prime hypothesis that this variant will be more engaging than the last. Why do I need engagement with this newsletter given that the guest interviews are quite popular and since I'm not selling ears to the advertisers? Well, okay, I believe that these episodes are, that these connective episodes, the newsletter episodes are of value to the learners. So I am testing various ways of delivery. Well, okay, are they actually of value? Well, that's a longer term question that I'll evaluate with your help between seasons. For now, I'm running with what Davi our guest from episode three, recently sent on LinkedIn and that sort of underscores my belief in the value of this learning content. Davi said, dogma is the enemy of learning and curiosity is the defense. Okay, so these are my hypotheses as and the reason why I'm actually running them. Now, how will I know that this format is better than the last? Well, okay, if you listen till the end, that's a good signal. If you then subscribe to the show, that's a good signal. If you then go and listen to the episodes referenced in here, that's an even better signal. So that's what we've set up as a hypothesis, and that's how we're going to measure that. And if you like my pulling back the curtain and you want to know more, start with episode one of season one, where I introduce the whole business game's concept. That season is called the Business Game Z1. And it shall contain more episodes that are effectively a live business case study of this very startup. So what you're experiencing is a live business case study of a startup. How exciting. Number two, the connective tissue. So, okay, we started off with a few key questions in our season. Namely, why are we talking more about business experimentation right now? What's so special about right now? Are there no drawbacks? How would you leverage this in your business? Note, we're answering these as we go along and at the end of the season especially. Uh, Especially at the end of the season having talked to all our experts, we shall revisit what we've learned and whether this framing was in fact the most useful. There will definitely be learnings. And as an extra key point, I highlight how we must have relatable contexts in order to learn. After all, to quote my favorite marketing professor, your portable toilet business has nothing to learn from Steve Jobs. Also happens to be the title of one of the episodes, so check it out. Now, in our first interview with J.P. Castlin, we've set up all the contexts of interest that we could cover. We've got corporate versus SME, established versus startup, strategic versus, a strategic focus versus operational efficiency, and many more. We've also learned about complexity theory and about how organizations are ecosystems and not at all machines. Treat them like machines at your own peril. Well, what does that mean practically? Well, Practically, try telling a forest where to play and how to win. How would that work out for you? See what I mean? And yet, we think that we can direct our organizations to do exactly as we bid. Okay, so maybe a slightly better nature analogy. Think of a garden. What do you do with a garden? You build some frames for your crawly plants, like vines. If you want to have berries, you dig in boundaries for your strawberries and raspberries such that they don't get out of their patch. You plant those plants that love sun in the sunnier patches and those that can handle shade in the shadier ones. You pluck the weeds, you trim the branches, you give some nutrients, and then you let it grow and let the nature do its thing. The outcome is both pleasing to the eye and unexpected. That is, it's emergent. And so we introduced the key concepts of emergent strategy, guardrails, deliberate strategy for scaling and dampening. This last one is your trimming and weeding. It's deliberate while your garden plant growth is then emergent. We also introduced the concept of failsafe uh, for experimentation. You want to allow failure, but it must be failure that is affordable. You cannot not have failure. If you already know the outcome, it's not experimentation, it's implementation as I discussed in my Deep Dive follow-up to our conversation with JP. The Deep Dive is available on the private podcast feed for premium subscribers. It's a lot of alliteration. but I think I got there in the end. As a fun exercise, we talked about Marvel vs. Blumhouse. And I go for another 10 to 15 minutes into the Marvel history of experimentation in the Deep Dive. It's real fun. For all you comics, film, and superhero nerds out there, and I consider myself to be enough of a nerd for this, the complete multiple decades-long journey of Marvel is actually a super-illuminating example of emergent strategy. I get into that with all the glorious purpose. Now, people either got this or I just lost a whole lot of listeners slash readers. Hell, I even bring Apple and Ted Lasso into this. (laughs) Haha! And we thought we cannot learn from Apple. Quick aside, I do like learning concepts on the basis of large, visible brands, because they're large and visible. That's not to say that what they do exactly has relevance to our much smaller ones. Often their particular moves not only do not have relevance, but are in fact outright dangerous. So the next time your CEO says, I read that Apple is doing this and that, why don't we try the same? Feel free to answer this with a blunt, because we are not Apple. Of course, for your own job safety, I suggest quickly adding, but we'll go and see if we can learn from Apple, from what Apple is doing, and then use some of those learnings for our portable toilet business. Because to understand the concepts, I think it works. Anyway. In the third interview episode with Davi Willefair, we also talked about the concepts of guardrails when designing a culture of experimentation. Davi calls the culture of experimentation a progressive learning. It's similar. Just like i do doing my deep dive into a safe to fail theme from J.P. Castellan Conversation, Davi talks about the incredible intrinsic value of learning itself. So you see, there is this recurring theme of what I would call a major red herring in the discussion of experimentation, namely a phrase, our experiment failed. An experimentation can only fail if it delivers no learning. If you tested a hypothesis and you managed to reject it, that's not a failure of an experiment. That's a tremendous success in learning. And I'm pausing for a fact here, as it's a great quote. So how do you set up a culture of experimentation? Listen to the full episode with Davi and my deep dive. Both are available in the premium feed. If you want to try before you buy, listen to an abridged version of the conversation with Davi on the public feed to get a feeling of what we're talking about. It covers about 75% of the complete talk. For now, I'll say that continuous learning depends on the size of the bets and the continuous testing. Again, the experimentation culture will only succeed if it is safe to fail. Wow, there's another great quote. Jesus, I'm on a roll today. I'm so humbled too. The interesting bit for me, personally, is to combine the insights from JP and Davi in this sense. JP is a consultant who works with C-suites, boards, and CMOs of many large international organizations. He is a strategist. Davi is an experienced CIO and CTO of a few large organizations with stints of half a decade in each. So Davi has both strategic and a deep implementation slash transformation experience. Now, as consultants, we just can't approach that hands-on depth. We see maybe breadth, but less depth. So when both JP and David talk independently about the same concepts, you know there's truth to these. That is, they work. Even more crucially, when JP points out issues with waiting for the next big thing and points out that, you know, what should thousands of employees do while waiting for the next big thing at Apple. That's a reference to the conversation which makes sense once you listen to it. It's then great to hear the hands-on guidance from Davi about exactly what those employees should do. In other words, JP positions nicely the concepts behind the latest business science, the complexity science, and how they relate to the strategic discourse Basically the what and the why. And Davi as if picks these up, shows them in a different light and also adds then the practical how of it all. Now one of those how of it all points is focusing on problems to be solved. Now looking ahead, this coming week we'll talk to Melissa Clark Reynolds about jobs to be done and how this relates to experimentation. We'll also see how Melissa started to track the likelihood of the pandemic starting in December 2019. This is really exciting, like that part is so exciting. You should definitely check it out as well as the whole connection of predictions and experimentation. Now but first before we get there Davi's problems to be solved versus Melissa's jobs to be done. Now Melissa is of course referencing Clayton Christensen. You should listen to Melissa's full interview when it comes out in a few days. For now Consider that we talked about this in the context of innovation and disruption and how it is the business models that are truly disruptive, not tech, not the technology. And Melissa would know. She was awarded the Officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit for her services to technology by the Queen. Now, Darwin's problems to be solved is a similar concept. I'd say it's a companion concept. In our conversation, Darby gave guidance on how to use this as a central concept in creating your organization's culture of experimentation. You use it to focus on continuous learning, to minimize your own biases, and to unlock creativity in your organization. Why am I drawing these parallels and contrasts? In my current view, jobs to be done is a customer-centric concept in the sense that if you want to innovate, you need to understand a job that a customer needs to be done, and you try to focus on solving that. You discover it first, then you move towards solving it by iterating. So it is the how of achieving it is what you experiment around. Now, a problem to be solved can at once be wider and less well-defined. Davi gives plenty of examples in our talk, I, I recommend you listen, but it can be internal organizational problem, a cultural problem, a process problem, as well as a customer problem. As for less defined, well, that's the whole point of progressive learning. You need to be flexible in knowing that your problem to be solved is as you see it now, meaning it itself can change once you learn more about the domain. Now, speaking of the connection between prediction and experimentation, check out the second interview of the season with Professor Ananish Chowdhury, as well as my article on prediction markets. The article is available on the website, and I also provide the link in the show notes. This article is written in a dialogue form, and it uses examples of the NBA Finals predictions and how everybody got them wrong. Now, 15 games into the season, I gotta say the article looks even better than when I wrote it. Summary? Everybody is even more wrong than I thought. Really, it's a damn good article. I even got kudos from one of the top American sports journalists. So, why do we care about predictions and experimentation? Because we want to make better decisions. And we can only make better decisions if we have a better understanding of what our decisions will lead to. That is, if we do A, what is likely to follow? If you're good at predicting, you have a part of that answer. Maybe a large part. If you're really good at experimenting, you have another part of that answer. Both help you uncover with some confidence, even if never 100%, what would likely happen if you do this. So in that regard, they're substitutes. But predictions and experiments are also complements. They can and should work together. You try and predict what would happen, or what could happen, And that's your hypothesis. Then you experiment to test your hypothesis. You could therefore treat those concepts very similarly. And Professor Chowdhury, who is, by the way, ranked in the top 5% of economics authors worldwide, gives us a playbook on how to utilize online prediction markets as a form of an experiment. And again, looking ahead to the conversation with Melissa and how she predicts or how she predicted the pandemic way ahead of anyone else, Well, she wasn't the only one in the world, but she's one of the few, right? She dives deep into how to monitor and draw information from the so-called weak signals. Now, by definition, they're weak. So how to combine them and glean meaning is as much art as it is science. So in the week after Melissa's interview, we have a chat with Ashley Bergoff the author of Eureka Results, about the experimentation within the SME and Solopreneur market. We'll revisit systems, we'll revisit hypothesis testing and other themes already mentioned, but we'll also talk about how the challenges of lifestyle entrepreneurs introduce differences in experimental approaches. And even more so, we'll talk about how adopting an experimental mindset can indeed help entrepreneurs to deal with some of those challenges that do not show up for employees. So that's your SME and entrepreneurial, solopreneurial context as different to the other discussions that we've been having. So that's the connective tissue between where we've come from and where we're going over the next few weeks. I'm trialing this type of a digest for both the public and private feeds. I'm also designing a shorter but deeper summary at the end of the week for the premium members called The Weekender. And it'll have questions to consider that should help you utilize the ideas from business games conversations. And digest, if you will, some of those concepts or internalize some of them better. Uh, We call it the building of a muscle memory in decision-making or in thinking. And now for something completely the same. Wisdom of the crowd. So the post that I wrote is about uncertainty, but it's also about creativity and anxiety. It's, you know, keeping with this week's theme. I got into a LinkedIn conversation with um, Robert van Ostenbruggen. Robert is a partner at the Commercial Works. Uh, He has a background in psychology, methodology, and marketing. And he contributed to the book called Eat Your Greens, Fact-Based Thinking to Improve Your Brand's Health. And that's how I got to know Robert first because I loved his chapters in that book. So if you've never came across this book and you're in marketing or C-suite or on the board or you're an entrepreneur or a student, so basically if you're following business games, if you're our audience, you should get this book. That's an amazing book. It's it's a compendium of a lot of rich knowledge from I don't even know how many authors it has, but uh, let me check it out quickly. It's got 42 chapters from maybe 35 people. It, it, it's it's amazing. It's an amazing book. You should get it anyway. Uh, back to my conversation with Robert. So I was having this uh, conversation and um, on, on LinkedIn, and I have a full LinkedIn post for context. So... Uh, But basically, the conversation ended with Robert saying the following, and I quote him. I am convinced that we make better decisions if we do see the nuances, the strengths, and the weaknesses, and accept the uncertainty. But these are indeed hard to sell. Somehow, we'd rather pretend the world is easy to understand than to face its complex and act accordingly. So, that's the whole premise behind Business Games, right down to the tagline making better decisions under uncertainty, you know, so I didn't need to be convinced. So what actually happened? Okay, what happened was that I was pointing out that it's tough to convince others of this, especially client managers. Let's break down my thoughts. So understanding ambiguity does make you better at navigating uncertainty and making better decisions. Okay, so big thumbs up. So why do we resist this then as humans? Okay, so that goes to our atavistic fear of the unknown. So ambiguity feeds that. It feeds the fear. It makes the fear stronger. Introduces anxiety. And therefore, we crave certainty. In addition, client managers have one eye on the job. So they have one eye on their job. And therefore, ambiguity increases their worry for their job. So if all all of these worlds are possible... You know, all these futures are possible. What will I tell my boss? What will my boss say? Like, I can't sell ambiguity to my boss. So even if somebody understands that ambiguity is a good thing, and we'll get to it in a second, how would they talk to their boss about it? Okay, anyway, so all of this means that It's tough. It's tough to be talking to others about ambiguity. I'm trying to build a business around teaching it, but I'm basically very upfront about it, and I'm not telling you that I'm going to design you a completely ambiguous strategy. That's probably, you know, it's not going to go down very well, Uh, nor is it what I do. So anyway, does it mean that giving business people a false sense of certainty is a good idea? Well, no, we certainly do not subscribe to that. Though we know plenty quote-unquote, data agencies to have this sales pitch. Give us your data, we'll remove all your uncertainty and show you the true ROI of all your activities. Yeah? And while it's not necessarily unscrupulous, it could just be very delusional about their own domains. Because ultimately, this position is bullshit and we never adopted that when we talk to the clients. Okay, good. Then what to do, right? So, what are you suggesting, Andre? Well, it's a good question. Consider these three points. First of all, you start with yourself. And as Robert says, we make better decisions if we do see the nuances, the strengths, and the weaknesses, and accept the uncertainty. So, this is a really good thing. Now, fighting your own biases is hella tough. But ultimately, that's all we have control over. So, start there. Start with yourself. Understand that, you know, you have biases fix those. Or, you know, at least not fix, but learn to deal with them. Because that's the key. It's a bit like fixing the, the uncertainty. You can fix it, so you need to leverage it. Now, second, find good examples of when ambiguity helped. Or, the flip side of it, find good examples of when certainty hurt surprisingly easy to find I mean consider people who believe with full certainty that a viral infection does not exist how many of those occupy the ICUs that's unfortunately a very tragic example but it's stark it's, it's visible it's visceral there are of course business examples where businesses made bets with full certainty that something would happen or would not happen and then it went terribly wrong now if they had adopted a probabilistic mindset maybe they wouldn't have been so certain you know so there are situations we're living through right one right now where having full certainty about something is about the worst possible thing that you can do or to phrase it properly believing that you have full certainty about something is about the worst thing you could possibly do. And then number three, start a conversation of fun, profitable uses of ambiguity within your organization, with your colleagues or bosses. So Robert talks about segmentation. You know, it's customer segmentation. Take an example of customer segmentation. And uh, his example from the original LinkedIn post, uh, which I think is an amazing amazing depiction of what a segmentation actually does. Uh, and basically Robert points out that a segmentation is present- as, as presented highlights sometimes artificially amplified differences between the segments. When in reality focusing on the similarities might be more appropriate. It's a similar point to the, uh, to the approach that both Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett subscribe to while investing. Focusing on what's not going to change rather than on what will. Check out the Farnham Street post on the topic titled What's Staying the Same? It's not a question. It's What's Staying the Same? It's the statement. So in my conversation with Robert, I focused on the negative side and that was a mistake. I shouldn't have focused on the negative side. There's a more powerful point of view and the more powerful positive narrative is this. Okay? So when faced let's say with the segmentation. The relevant discussion points are... Is actually, it has nothing to do with these are our segments or we cannot predict anything, okay? So the relevant discussion points are is this the best segmentation? What about the alternatives? Plural. What pros and cons does each have? What's similar between the segments? Between all of them? Knowing that all models are wrong but some are useful. What useful bits does each segmentation tell us? And finally, if you're considering many segmentations, which fits our strategic purpose the best? But let's be even more precise, because I think I'm cheating a little bit by saying the best or... Yes, because the concept of the best in a multidimensional space doesn't actually have much of a meaning if all models are wrong, but some are useful, and if the usefulness shows up in many different things, the bestness doesn't actually exist. So I think the most, the, the, the really the most important takeaway from all of this is that looking wide is better than looking up. Because when you consider best and worst and everything else, you're looking up, you're looking at what is better. When I think that the most important thing is what is different and how is it different and what are the the same things and how are those things the same? Because that's really interesting. That is the most interesting bit. Knowing that there is no one right answer, but many answers could be helpful. That is genuine fun. Digging through those things is fun. So such questions are fun for business. They can also be had with people who have no data or analytics background. They are fun. They get the creative juices flowing. In, in our context, both for consultants and the client, but, but more importantly, like between people. Like you can talk about what, what is the same, what is different, and how does any of this relate to stuff. And this is the fun way of dealing with ambiguity, Okay, so we certainly, uh, like, can speak from my company's example, uh, is that we certainly had experience discussing these topics in similar ways with clients who had zero data background. It's fun AF. Well, thank you for listening to this week's edition of Learner's Digest on business games. Look out for the episode with Melissa Clark Reynolds about predictions and experimentation. And hopefully, if you haven't yet, you'll go and check out the episodes that I referenced. Until next time, stay safe. Bye.